Dr. Marlene Bagato is an audiologist at the National Center for Audiology at Western University in London, Ontario. She spends most of her time in the Child Amplification Lab. Dr. Bagato's specific research is focused on fitting babies for hearing aids as soon as possible after a problem is detected. Because your brain is really, it, it continues to develop after the baby is born. It's, it's just waiting for information. And if we if we don't give it the right and proper amount of information through the ears, um, then the brain won't establish those neural connections in order to hear the language and, and learn how to speak themselves. So we really work on what are those levels and how can we scientifically make measurements of tiny baby ears and measurements of hearing aid outputs so that we know um, that those levels are being achieved in the baby's ear um, because they can't participate in the process. They're too young. Dr. Bagato says her work can be all-consuming and says finding an appropriate work-life balance in her profession can be a challenge. When I was doing my PhD, which is not for the faint of heart, it doesn't matter what topic you're working on, and I felt that during that time I was very imbalanced and I kept thinking to myself, well, when I'm done my PhD, things will settle down and I'll be more balanced. And I was working still at the university when I was doing my PhD. What I learned after I achieved my PhD was that that balance doesn't, like it doesn't get less busy. You have to impose your own balance. Um, So I just really strive hard to do that. On this episode of Run It Like a Girl, Dr. Bagato discusses her fascinating research and her work with hearing specialists around the world. She also talks about how women have for so long downplayed their successes, something she says should happen no longer. Dr. Marlene Bagato on this episode of Run It Like a Girl. So today we're in uh, London, Ontario, where we're speaking with Dr. Marlene Bagato at the National Center for Audiology at Western University. Marlene, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It's it's been such an experience uh, doing doing these interviews, and and we're just we're so thrilled that that you've agreed. So why don't we just get right started and 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 uh, jump right in? Uh, how about we start? Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, what it is that you do, your background, and and your decision to uh, go into audiology. Well, as you say, I'm an audiologist that uh, requires graduate level training in Canada, and I I did that for a number of years. Um, working in clinical settings, general clinical settings, and then partly at the University of Western Ontario as a research associate. Um, I did that for a few years um, working in the child amplification laboratory, which is where I work now. However, after working for about nine years um, with the master's level in between there, I I work towards a clinical doctorate, which um, helps broaden your clinical uh, focus and um, evidence-based practice. And then um, a few years after that, I pursued my PhD in hearing science so that I could focus more on being an independent researcher in audiology. And my particular focus is in pediatrics and how best to fit hearing aids on infants who have hearing loss. You know, for those listening that might not uh, completely understand what it is that, that, that you are doing it for your career, what is an audiologist and, and more specifically the area that you specialize in? So audiologists look at um, hearing assessment, balance assessment and habilitation if there's any sort of issues in terms of a hearing or a hearing deficit or a vestibular or balance uh, problem. 
um, and work with the technology needed to support someone who has a hearing loss. I particularly work with babies. Um, in particular, in Ontario, we have an early hearing detection and intervention program that's provincially funded. I consult with that program with the Ministry of Children and Youth Services to help develop and implement their protocols for screening the babies, assessing the babies if they don't pass the screening, and then what are the protocols needed to fit hearing aids on babies at the early months of life. And that's really what the Child Amplification Laboratory at Western University does research in. So that's the, the, the place where I live is pediatric amplification, though I understand the whole early hearing detection and intervention process and and talk about those aspects um, when I give presentations as well. And in particular, the importance of early hearing detection, which we can do at the age of two to three months of age by reading their brain waves in response to sound. And then we can use that information to fit um, digital hearing aids to babies at the age of four to six months um, to make sure that they, the baby who has a permanent hearing loss has clean and safe access to the speech signal so that they themselves can develop speech and language on par with their normal hearing peers. Because your brain is really, it, it continues to develop after the baby is born. It's, it's just waiting for information. And if we, if we don't give it the right and proper amount of information through the ears, um, then the brain won't establish those neural connections in order to hear the language and, and learn how to speak themselves. So we really work on what are those levels and how can we scientifically make measurements of tiny baby ears and measurements of hearing aid outputs so that we know um, that those levels are being achieved in the baby's ear um, because they can't participate in the process. They're too young. The, the processes that we, we have learned and teach, they work. These children are developing speech and language normally um, compared to their normal hearing peers. So it's pretty fascinating and it's a lot of responsibility. I have my own small clinical population that I work with in the clinic at Western and um, I, I get to work firsthand with these families um, and watch these babies just fly in their speech and language and their social and educational development as well. I'd be interested to know, um, uh, as you've been going through your career, have there been certain mentors or certain people that have helped you um, kind of in your career path and journey? Yes, certainly. Um, I've been in this career for about 20 years now, so I've um, been pleased and very um, grateful to have a lot of mentors along the way. One of my first mentors was Dr. Richard Seawald and is uh, certainly still Dr. Richard Seawald, who developed a particular uh, method for fitting hearing aids on babies. And he really was, um, I feel, instrumental in building my confidence as um, someone who could um, pursue um, academics, in particular research. Um, one of the things I learned by working alongside him is that we do work alongside each other. There was no, um, I felt no hierarchy around that. And he really, I think, um, without doing it um, particularly, he he raised women in science. Um, I'm one of his professional daughters, so to speak. There are a few of us um, that we still work together and support each other. And I, although Dr. Seawald is retired, um, we still meet regularly and and he helps support me through some career 
um, decisions and understandings around that. And over the years, I have other mentors who I've worked alongside who are um, why I would cons consider my peers in terms of how long they've been in the profession so they can help me understand what we're working towards um, together now and dealing with um, challenges that we might face in academia and research and clinical practice. And then other people who are more experienced um, and again, women who help um, help support me um, through international connections and collaborations. So I'm very grateful to have at least three or four uh, mentors, um, both men and women, who have who have fostered relationships both personally and professionally with me, um, so that I can um, grow the confidence I need um, to do the work that I do and feel good about um, translating that to others, and then showing others how I can mentor them. So I. I pay it forward or I try to um, because of their model that I've followed. So I'm very grateful for all of them. <laughs> One thing that's that's clear through a lot of the interviews we've been doing is that, you know, mentors play a big role. But now with the women we're talking to who are more into their careers, it's also about giving back now. And as a strong, you know, confident woman with a very successful career, what kind of advice do you give to others who might be struggling with trying to find their confidence or find their voice? Um, to do and go for the the goals that they want to achieve. Yeah, that's a great question. I I I feel like because the others who have worked with me, um, I I try to model um, the behaviors rather than explicitly uh, mentoring them and saying you need to be more confident. Um, but rather, if I hear them say um, a, a a phrase like "Well, I can't do that" or "That's not what I'm good at" or whatnot, I particularly just sort of rephrase that uh, for them and model, well, I think that you can do that. We just need to work on these few things so that you can take those steps to improve what you feel is a limitation in, in what you're trying to accomplish. And, and I really do feel um, for young scientists, both uh, men and women, um, if they're lacking confidence um, in what they're trying to work towards um, that accomplishment leads to confidence. So if they literally take baby steps towards writing a paper or doing a small research project and me allowing them to take the lead on that and mentoring them on little bits along the way, they feel like they've accomplished it. Um, and that feels that hopefully will breed confidence within them. Um, and I'm just simply a, a guiding passenger in their journey. So that's, that's how I feel I've been mentored and that's how I I have been trying to mentor some of my students along the way. You also are, you travel now. You're, you're going to New Zealand, I think, in and in probably in very short time to, to speak mm -hmm. um, about, uh, mm -hmm. about your field. What is it like now that you've kind of, you've come up, you're at a point in your career now where you're actually the one being sought after and the one whose advice uh, is being sought. Um, what does that look like for you as a, as a, as a strong uh, career woman who's now, you know, going off and, and speaking about the field that you've been training in for so many years? Well, I feel a, a large sense of responsibility to ensure that I know the messages that I'm relaying to clinicians and other scientists and mainly clinicians who are going to listen to a talk that I'm doing that um, describes the evidence necessary for fitting a hearing aid properly on a baby. So there's a level of responsibility I feel for even my own patients that I see when I, I do those techniques. But describing it clearly 
um, to other clinicians that on Monday morning after my talk will hopefully go in and apply those techniques so that the babies they see in their countries will have the same um, the same level of practice that we are exhibiting where we work in Canada and, and in the United States as well. So um, I want to make sure that I'm not saying anything that isn't backed up factually. And if, if it isn't backed up factually um, and with science and evidence, then I say so. And I, so I just, I do feel a level of responsibility in that regard. And I do feel grateful that um, I've, I've been able to um, do things that people feel are worthwhile. So they wouldn't be asking me if they didn't think that the work that I did was was worthwhile and and true, and the the fact that they feel I can communicate the information effectively. So um, I feel grateful that I've been able to get the practice in presenting, so that I can um, translate the knowledge that we learn in the laboratory to clinicians and other researchers who might be doing similar research and can learn from me as well. And having these wonderful conversations with people all over the world to see where the the, the other research questions are. So it's it's also a little bit um, self fulfilling because I learn from these other countries what other questions we need to answer through our research, and um, it just means that we always have work to do. And I'm I'm grateful to participate with other uh, people who do similar research and sharing the knowledge um, wherever we can. And I get to go to really exotic places that I would never normally go to. So, um, yeah, so it, it's just a win-win. It, it's, uh, it's a really um, excellent part of the work that I do. Have you found that you build more of a community and the relationships you gain there? Do you keep in touch with these, these people afterwards? Do you, do you find that, uh, that you continue conversations once you uh, are back in your own uh, lab? Absolutely. Like the best example I can think of is um, in 2009 or eight, I guess I was invited to go to South Africa for 2009 um, for a few weeks to do a number of talks for a, 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 the university and, and a, a, a large set of clinics there. And I spent lots of time traveling around with them um, and working with this woman who we joked that we were like sisters of pediatric audiology who lived in different countries. She wanted to be able to achieve what we were achieving in Canada, but she lives in a, in a different country with different healthcare and different ways of life. So um, we became fast friends and, and to the point that we always connect and they invited me back um, a couple of more times to, to continue on with that education and to support them um, in some of the work that they do in, in that very different part of the world. A lot of my friends, I say to my friends in London, I have friends all over the world. And when I go to a conference, I get to hang out with my friends. What's better than that? Hey, eh? you're doing yeah, work well, uh, <laughs> well catching up yeah. with friends. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd love to talk a, a little bit about that because um, as uh, someone that's, you know, clearly very passionate about what it is that you do, I would imagine that sometimes personal life and work life can tend to blend together a little bit. So I'd love to know kind of like, what does that work-life balance look like to you? It's, it's always a constant effort to remain balanced. I try to do that as much as I, I possibly can. When I was doing my PhD, which is not for the faint of heart, it doesn't matter what topic you're working on, it's just a really self-motivating 
activity and you're no one's going to write your dissertation for you you just have to do that after you've done your project so um, you really just need to work on that and I felt that during that time I was very imbalanced and I kept thinking to myself well when I'm done my PhD things will settle down and I'll be more balanced and I was working still at the university when I was doing my PhD because I was um, I still was needing an income and that sort of thing so what I learned after I achieved my PhD was that that balance doesn't like it doesn't get less busy. You have to impose your own balance. Um, so I just really strive hard to do that. And I just really make sure that I when I have to work extra, if, you know, um, the partner who I am with understands that that's important to me and necessary um, to do. And I need to make sure I have a real partner who is understanding of those types of things. So other things in our lives can be taken care of because I, I have pets, I don't have children. So I, you know, I still make sure that I get the, the extra time to do things compared to those people who do have children and balance the children. So just because I don't have children doesn't mean I don't have a life. So I, I make sure I, I carve that, that life out for me that's outside of my work. And I need a partner who is understanding of the, the different um, responsibilities that I take very seriously. So yes, I want to go and, and have some downtime, but there are times when I just can't and I need to focus on something because there's a deadline or I have to go out of town and I'm just not there. So um, I just really have to be, um, I have to know what I need and I have to um, communicate that to people in my life, whether they be work people or uh, personal friends and partners. Um, just so that I can ensure that I have that balance and I'm not cheating myself and working too much and too hard. So, and that ebbs and flows. So sometimes it's just very imbalanced work-wise. And then when that, when something is completed, then you're like, okay, I need to catch up on personal things now and, and make time for others and other things, including myself. I, I'm a, I'm a runner now. I, I started getting into that last summer. So that's really carved out for me. Um, I, I run half marathons and whatnot, and that takes a lot of commitment, and I just do it. I just say, no, I can't because i got to run, and that helps a lot. <laughs> when you were, so when you were first starting out then, I imagine, was that a challenge for you, trying to make people understand that you didn't have time to do certain things, that you had to be focused on your studies or you had to be at work right now? I imagine the relationships that you've had you know, with family or, or whomever um, – there might, you, you would really need a strong supporter in your corner because I can see that some people would be, well, just come out, just come out for one drink. Come on, just come out for one drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that, that is an easy thing to decline. Cause I just say no, but when you're living with a partner, that person has to pick up some slack and do it in a supportive way rather than a resentful way. So I've had those experiences where you know, the slack needed to be picked up and it was or wasn't. And if it was, it was resentful. And I didn't have early on, I didn't have the voice or the confidence to say, this isn't working for me. Like I, you know, because I felt like I was being selfish and I learned over the years that I'm not being selfish. I'm just stating my needs. And if I don't state my needs, no one else is going to guess. And then if I state my needs and that person chooses not to um, hear them or support them, then I have decisions to make in terms of is this is, is this relationship working for me? So um, I'm a lot better at 
just, you know, being um, straightforward in what my needs are. And it has nothing, if they think that that's personal for them, then that's not my problem. If they're intimidated by my success, then that intimidation is their problem, not mine. So I've had to, you know, work um, with that through some of the men I've had in my life, um, because although they like the idea of a, a successful independent woman, sometimes that um, impinges on what their their thought of a, a male female re relationship should be, and it doesn't work that way for me sometimes. <laughs> to be perfectly honest. You know, maybe that's a good segue to this next question, which would be um, if, if, if you could visit a 20-year-old version of yourself uh, and have a conversation, what would it look like? What, what would that advice be? Yeah, that is a great segue. I would certainly say, because I know early on, so I was, you know, um, in a, I was in a marriage and whenever, you know, typical age you get married, late 20s, I did. And um, I, I played down my successes. Um, I didn't, um, you know, talk too much about how well things were going for me at that stage of my career, because I wanted to, I, I could sense that there was some level of um, maybe intimidation or whatnot. It was just the dynamic. Um, and I would just say, why did you do that? Um, you should always um, you know, celebrate your successes and learn from your failures. So yes, I'm, I've made some mistakes personally and professionally, but I, I, sh I would have told myself that you should just do the best version of you. And when you do something awesome, then say it, don't diminish it and be proud of yourself and share that with the people who are close to you in your life and learn from your failures, no matter who's watching. So just, you know, um, just be the best version of you because you're the only one responsible for how well you do in this life. And if other people are, are not okay with that, then that, that's not my responsibility. Um, you know, you seem very confident. You, you, you are, you know, you're not going to apologize for your successes. I mean, why would you? Um, some people I don't think have that same confidence. Um, what would you say to, to, to someone, you know, that is thinking like how to just go for your uh, goals, achieve them. Don't be, don't be afraid. Yeah. I would say just that, like I would say, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Um, and that's a legitimate question on whatever scenario you're thinking of it. If it's just applying for your job, for a job, often um, there have been instances and data to show that, you know, women, when they apply for a job, they have to prove themselves on their resume or CV before the job. But a man will look at, they're looked at as what is their potential, even though their resume on paper is may not be as good as a woman. So we have to have already proved ourselves, though they get looked at as, oh, they have potential. So I just say, go for it. And if you don't get the job, you don't get the job. Or if you don't get the interview, you don't get the interview. But at least you got the experience. And also, you are interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. So you may not even really want the job, but it's an experience for you. And you can learn from your failures. And you can learn from if they legitimately didn't think you were right for the job, then you learned something about yourself. Or if you did something that totally went awry in the interview and you're like, I can't believe I did that, then you just learn from that for the next time. And again, that type of sort of um, little scrape on your on your confidence, it builds up and you become stronger. Or that's what I feel that's happened to me over the years. Um, I've had lots of bumps in the roads and it's not like I just 
came here overnight and there will be bumps in the road moving forward. And I just, I guess I just keep coming back stronger. I have my little um, pity parties and then I brush myself off and I, I just keep moving and I hope I continue to be stronger. And that's what I would just say is just whatever, you know, whatever you learn from just is going to make you better moving forward. So just try it if you've got the the strength to do it now and or take baby steps so you can build up that strength. Well, uh, Marlene, I just want to I want to thank you so much again for welcoming us into London. It was it's a beautiful city you have here um, and the very cool tour of your lab that you gave us. Um, and just thank you so much for, for sharing your uh, your story with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity to do that. Um, you know, I'm passionate about the work that I do and I'm just um, very feel very grateful that I've been included in this podcast of a lot of awesome women. So thank you. Run It Like a Girl is hosted by Bonnie Moak. Brian Long is the producer. Web design and technical assistance provided by Dan Moak. And music courtesy of the talented Brooklyn Gillichuk.